There is no higher form of worship than to humble ourselves under the preaching of the Word of God, and it is my joy to lead you in that now. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Acts 19? We return once again to our study of Acts, and this morning I have titled my discourse to you, Encountering Evil with Overpowering Force. If you know anything about our military today, you know that they have some amazing weapons. From rifles that can disintegrate a man at over one mile, to supersonic stealth aircraft. I was watching something the other day and they were talking about the Air Force's new F-22 Raptor, which is the most sophisticated stealth fighter in the world. They now have nuclear submarines that never need refueling. And if it weren't for the fact that the men need to get out from time to time, they would never even need to surface. We have laser-guided munitions called smart bombs. We have electronic pulse systems that can explode up over uh, a city and knock out all of the electronic communications, all of the cell phones and so forth. We have unmanned aerial vehicles and drones with unimaginable delivery systems. They have the capabilities today for a man to sit behind a computer and we'll say someplace in Kansas and be able to look in on his enemy all the way on the other side of the world. And I've had men that man these things tell me that we can look from Great distances up in the sky, and we can actually count the whiskers on a man's face. And with the click of a mouse, we can kill that man or millions of others if we chose to do so. Because we have those dreaded weapons of mass destruction. Staggering weaponry that exceed the limits of the imagination. But dear friends, I want you to hear me, and hear me good. We have a weapon that exceeds all others. We have a weapon at our disposal that causes fear to grip the God-hating leaders' hearts in worlds or in nations around the world. We have a weapon that has caused great civilizations to fall into a heap. We have a weapon that was used to give birth to the greatest nation in the history of the world. What is it? It is the living Word of God, the Bible, the most hated book in the history of the world, the most despised book, a book that God calls the sword of the Spirit, the oracles of God, the book of the law, the word of truth, the word of Christ. It is the book that reveals the laws and the statutes and the judgments of God. It is a book that records the prophecies of God that cause men to laugh on the outside and tremble on the inside. It is a book that contains the promises of the gospel. It is the book that is able 
to make you wise for salvation. It is a book that, that can literally transform men's hearts. It is a book that God uses to make new creatures in Christ, to impart spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It is a book that can deliver a man from the kingdom of darkness and condemn him to an eternal hell. It is a book that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is a book that can give men and women and boys and girls supernatural power to accomplish the very purposes of God, which are diametrically opposite to the purposes of Satan and the world system that he controls. It is a book that is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. It destroys speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. It is Satan's worst nightmare and most dreaded foe because it is the power of God unto salvation. And in our text today, we have a wonderful opportunity to read of an historical account of just how powerful this supernatural weapon really is. Follow along as I read in Acts 19 beginning with verse 8. And he, referring to Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord 
was growing mightily and prevailing. I believe that the Spirit of God would have me speak to you this morning concerning four categories of truth that emerge from this text. Let me give them to you briefly. Number one, we are going to see the human labor of evangelism. This will be an underscoring God's strategy to reconcile sinners. He uses human beings in a very profound way. Secondly, we're going to see the divine hardening of hearts. This is the inevitable consequence of unbelief. Thirdly, we will examine the demonic exploitation of Christ, where we will see once again an example of how charlatans use Christ rather than worship him. And then fourthly, we're going to see the supernatural conversion of sinners that once again displays the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. All of this combined, therefore, forms the basis of the title of this discourse, Encountering Evil with Overpowering Force. First of all, the human labor of evangelism. Notice in verse 8, we read that he in he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. And it says that he was reasoning the word dialegami. We get our word to dialogue from that refers to literally a question and answer type of thing where he was confronting them publicly. Here's what the truth say says. What do you say? Let me answer your questions. This is what he was doing for three months. He was reasoning and it says persuading, which has the idea of convincing someone with a compelling argument. And he was doing this with respect to the kingdom of God. Now, dear friends, can you imagine the boldness that this would have taken? Can you imagine the knowledge that it took for him to take on these hostile Jews? Can you imagine the love that would be required to die to self at such a level as to be willing to subject yourself to that kind of hostile environment and to deliver the only truth that can save men's souls? And I would ask you from the outset, does this describe your life? You know, most Christians never come close, close to engaging the enemy in the front lines of evangelism. They kind of leave that up to the pastor or the missionaries, because unfortunately, most Christians are ruled by fear, not by love. You know, this is always God's strategy to reconcile sinners to himself, the proclamation of the word. In fact, in first Corinthians one twenty one, we read how that the wisdom of man and the techniques of man cannot accomplish this. But he says that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he would have written this to the Corinthians around the time of this particular scenario that we're reading about here in Ephesus. And likewise, in Romans 10, Romans 10, we read, how will they hear without a preacher? And he goes on to say that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, it may seem abundantly obvious to you, but I want to underscore it. Nevertheless, God uses his people for the faithful proclamation of the gospel. People like you, people like me, because the gospel 
is his instrument to save his elect. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. And we see this played out in dramatic detail here before our eyes in this text. Now, let me give you some history. You will recall in Acts 18 that Paul comes to Ephesus. He's got Priscilla and Aquila with him. And he reasons with the Jews in the synagogue and then he departs and he goes to Jerusalem. Priscilla and Aquila, you will recall, remain there. And then Apollos comes and they interact with him and and um, and he presents more truth there along with Priscilla and Aquila. And now here in Acts 19, we know that Paul returns from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And we read at the beginning of the chapter that he leads 12 men to Christ. And no doubt there were some women as well. And now we see that he enters again into the synagogue, boldly proclaiming the gospel for three months. He's reasoning with them, urging them to repent and to believe. And we see that the Jews are becoming increasingly hardened. And then we know that he spends two more years speaking to both Jews and Greeks. In fact, in Acts 20, verse 20 We read more of what happens here, that he went publicly and house to house. In verse 27, it says that he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purposes of God. And in verse 31, he says, night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Many times I find in Christian circles, it's hard to get people To minister for three hours, much less three years. I'm struck with both the method and the mandate which Paul later summarized for young Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. And what did he charge him with? He said, I want you to preach the word. And then he says, be ready. It's a military term in the original language. Be ready. It's the idea of being urgent, being eager to stand at your post. Be on guard. Do your duty. Be ready, he says, in season and out of season. In other words, stay at your post doing what I've called you to do. Come what may. And then he gives them gives him two negatives and two positives. He says, I want you to reprove and I want you to rebuke. There's the negatives. And then the positives, he says, I want you to exhort with great patience and instruction. And that's what Paul did here in Ephesus. And may I underscore something once again that I believe Christians can easily forget in this age of pragmatism and marketing ploys to somehow attract crowds And build ostensibly evangelical churches. Will you notice that he didn't deliver the word of God through the medium of some kind of an Ephesian rock concert. He did not draw a crowd with that and therefore kind of convince them that, you know what? Hey, come and hear me because Christianity is really no different than your current lifestyle. He didn't do that. I I don't read here any celebrity testimonies to somehow give credibility to the truth. I I don't see that. There's no drama team. There's no interpretive dance. 
There's no magic shows to somehow kind of soften up the crowd or comedy routines to entertain them so that you can kind of sneak up on the crowd and give them the gospel. He just preached the word. You see, Paul understood that truth wars against deception. It is a war and it's ridiculous to go to war if somebody says to you, now, wait a minute. Make sure you don't use a weapon that might offend the enemy. I mean, only the enemy could come up with anything that ludicrous. Yet, as I observe the shenanigans of many of these so-called churches that employ these antics, I have to say, my goodness, why on earth would you exchange the most powerful weapon on earth for a squirt gun full of gimmicks? That makes no sense to me. Yes, but most people hate biblical preaching. Well, of course they do, because they hate God. They're spiritually dead. But if you understand the word of God, it is only that word that will ever save them. And that's why Paul never resorted to a squirt gun full of gimmicks. If I'm asked to go to war, don't give me that squirt gun just because the enemy prefers it. I want the weapon of mass destruction. I want the word of God. And I marvel here as I look at Paul's loving determination to exhaust himself, to scatter the seed, no matter how hard the soil. You see, he understood that there will always be patches of soil that God has prepared by his grace. And I'm sure he also understood as we watch his ministry that at times the hard may be or the soil may be hard. But later on, God may come along and use something to plow it up to receive the seed. He understood that God works through faithful men and women who work hard at presenting the gospel. Tireless servants. And I also look at this and see that that Paul was not some hyper Calvinist fatalist. That would say, well, God's just going to do whatever he will do without me. Nor was he on the other side as some hyper Arminian decisionist that would say, well, God is powerless without me. No, he just kept scattering the seed, the gospel seed. Beloved, never give up on evangelism. Never assume that you labor in vain. Never Assume that there is not some oasis of of fertile soil awaiting that predetermined seed. Sadly, I believe that it is our lack of faith that is often harder than the soil upon which we sow. Never stop sowing. And whatever you do, don't alter the seed to try to come up with some hybrid seed that will penetrate the soil. That is God's job to do. Just keep sowing the same gospel seed that saved people in the first century because it is well suited to save them today. Men's hearts are no different. God's saving message is no different. Grace is no different. And beloved, His power to save is no different. Now I ask you, when was the last time You gave your testimony to someone who was lost. When was the last time you presented the gospel to someone? Let me make it a little bit easier. When was the last time you invited someone to church 
so that maybe somebody else could kind of give them the truth. You know, I challenge you all, get out and sow. Get out and sow the seed. You know, our responsibility, beloved, is in the planting, not in the reaping. Whether the ground is as hard as a rock, whether it's filled with stones or thorns or thistles, you just keep sowing and God will be faithful to bring the increase. And you want to remember that many of us were once the poster child of rebellion and hardness of heart. I've heard your testimonies. You've heard mine. Some maybe perhaps were harder in some ways than others, but ultimately we were all spiritually dead. But grace kept pursuing. And how did that happen? Through the persistent prayers and proclamations of those who refused to give up. And that's what we see here with the Apostle Paul. The human labor of evangelism. Secondly, as we look at this text, we see the divine hardening of hearts. Notice in verse 9, but when some were becoming hardened. And here the grammar in the original language helps us understand that this was a process over time. The idea here is that the more they heard, the more they bristled against the truth. And it says they were disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. And he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we must understand, beloved, that God uses the gospel to either harden or soften a heart, one or the other. It will always be one or the other. For example, in Isaiah 55:10, we read how the word of God is likened to moisture from heaven that will inevitably fulfill its intended purpose by meeting the needs of humanity in a physical way. And then in verse 11, it says, so will my word by which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sin it. And as you have learned before, certainly you've heard this from this pulpit, as Scripture teaches that that persistent unbelief will result in God judicially sealing a sinner in his sin and not allowing him to understand the truth any further. We read this, for example, in Matthew 13. And of course, this judicial hardening is an act of divine mercy because ultimately it limits further exposure to the truth for a person to reject that would ultimately increase their condemnation in the day of judgment. Well, this is what we see here in Acts 19 with the Ephesian Jews, a divine hardening of hearts, the inevitable consequence of unbelief. As a footnote, we can rejoice in grace, knowing that when we proclaim the gospel, we are reassured, as we've learned in Acts 13, 48, that all those who are appointed unto eternal life will believe. Now, notice the evidence of a hard heart here in verse nine. It says they were becoming hardened and disobedient. The term literally means to refuse to believe here. This is the idea. They refused to believe as God had commanded them to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior. Now, think about it. Despite Paul's inspired reasoning and persuading, as we've seen here in verse eight, despite his supernaturally brilliant, irrefutably compelling arguments, they choose not to believe. I've been there many times with people. Perhaps you have, too. 
You present to them the truth and two plus two is five. It doesn't matter how you cut it. People believe what they want to believe. Even when the evidence is overwhelmingly to the contrary. They believe what they want to believe, not what God wants them to believe, not what God has said. And only God can cause these blind minds and hearts to see. So they were hardened. They were disobedient. And it says that they were speaking evil of the way. See, it's in a capital there. This was a common appellation or a a title of early Christianity. They were speaking evil of the way before the people. And of course, hard hearted people will inevitably resort to ridicule and slander. They will try to undermine the credibility and the character of Christians and even of Christ himself. Of course, this is great sport in our culture. Satan tends to fuel the fire of unbelief by raising up religious phonies and con artists that fleece the naive and the ignorant. He makes them many times best-selling authors, gives them huge churches, puts them all over television, and even unbelievers look at them and say, my goodness, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. How can people possibly be that naive? A lot of this is tantamount to a religious version of world wrestling. All of this is an evidence of a hard heart, perhaps some that God has judicially sealed in that hardness, where people are unable to see the truth, unable to see their sin and the Savior. As a footnote, I was thinking about how in Matthew 7, the Lord describes a unique kind of hardness of heart. That is the Christian, the one, quote unquote, that professes Christ but does not possess him, the self-deceived person who will never enter the kingdom. This is such an interesting hardness of heart. And we know, according to that text and others, that they fill pulpits, they fill pulpits, they, they sit in sanctuaries, they can teach Sunday school, they can share your hymn book. They're the tares amongst the wheat. They can feast in our fellowships. But they no more love the living Christ than the rankest pagan. And this is especially dangerous when that kind of a person attends a Bible preaching and a Bible teaching church. Let me tell you why. You see, that is like injecting a weakened form of a a disease producing pathogen into someone's body in order to create an immunity to the disease. And we do that when we inoculate ourselves with certain shots. And the point here is people can become so inoculated by the truth that eventually they build up an immunity to it. Beloved, never underestimate the power of self-deception. Never underestimate the hardness of heart. Well, we don't know what they said about Paul, but it was it had to have been bad. In verse nine, we see that he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, eventually, when we evangelize people and they get to this point, we we have to shake the dust off of our feet. We know that there's a time where you're casting pearls before swine when it becomes obvious that their heart is is hardened and they refuse to believe. 
and they begin to slander, then it's time to move on, to stop evangelizing, but don't stop praying. Because God can still soften that hard heart and give you another opportunity. Now, there's several important principles to be learned here as we examine what Paul did. Let me give you a few of them that jump out at me. Number one, do not allow slander to deter you from your mission. Boy, it's easy to get into the battle and all of a sudden people start making fun of you or start spreading lies about you and you just want to give up. Don't do that. Paul didn't give up. He didn't quit. He just took another path. The elevator's broke. Take the stairs. You know, as a pastor, I've be I've come to understand that slander and ridicule and indifference will be the inevitable foes of my life and my ministry. And it takes a while, but you begin to get used to it at some level. And many times it will be people even within your own church. Fortunately, I don't think we have that here now, but we have had in the past. You know, the truth threatens cherished allegiances. It threatens cultural traditions. It undermines fragile doctrines. And people get angry and they can slander and so forth. Sometimes people can be like horseflies. And boy, I hate those things, especially this time of year when I'm riding my horses. They never give up. They just keep spinning around and, and trying to sting you, trying to sting your horse. But, you know, there's a lesson to be learned there. We need to be like the horse. He is equally determined to go about his business. Someone has said, and you've all heard this, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, right? Quitters never win. Winners never quit. I don't know who came up with that, but I heard that when I was a little boy, and it still sticks with me. And this is certainly the legacy of the life of the Apostle Paul. A second thing that jumps out at me here is that we need to model evangelism for new converts. We, we need to bring them along. You see, in verse 7, we see that... that he presents the gospel here now to 12 men and they come to a saving knowledge of Christ and perhaps others that, that we're not aware of here. And we know that they were disciples, but that doesn't mean that they were believers. Matthew taste in the original language for disciple. It, it doesn't always refer to to believers. It refers to one who is a learner or a follower but not always believers. And that's why in, in chapter 19, verse 1, he says that he found some disciples. And what we see now is that he moves away from this scenario and he brings these disciples with him. And perhaps it was some more disciples. And now we know that at least these had come to Christ. You know, Jesus did this with the twelve, didn't he? Wherever he went, they were with him. Every craftsman must first be an apprentice. So I think it's good when those of you who know and love Christ and you're modeling evangelism, you're teaching, you're preaching, bring along other young and new converts so that they can see what happens and they learn much from that. A third thing that jumps out at me here is don't allow evangelism to eclipse discipleship. You see, Paul now takes away his disciples and he reasons with them, with the, the, the people daily. And it says in verse 10, this took place for two years 
so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, let me remind you of something. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and so forth. And then he said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, if we look at verse 10, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I ask you, how could all the Jews and the Greeks in Asia possibly hear the word of the Lord? How could that have happened? I mean, did they all come and sit down and hear Paul preach and teach and reason with them? No, the answer was through his disciples. Beloved, remember Jesus' model for ministry? It's real simple. Concentration equals multiplication. You go deep with a few. You don't go shallow with many. You pour your life into a few You grow them deep in the faith, grow them deep in the word, and then they begin to replicate that in the lives of others. They begin to reach out and they begin to evangelize. Jesus spent most of his time discipling the twelve and only three of them primarily, Peter, James and John. And for pastors that are listening, I would urge you, if you are not discipling, especially key men in your church, If you're not taking them deep into the word, you are derelict in your duty and your church will never grow in depth and your evangelism will be minimal. Oh, you might grow big in numbers. Many of them do, but you'll be a mile wide and an inch deep. Another principle that emerges here is real simple, and that is we've got to work hard. Ministry is hard work. Notice in verse 9, it says, He took away the disciples' reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus in the original language means our tyrant. And that we don't know who he was. Perhaps this was just a nickname. I've had professors that I would gladly call my tyrant um, or a tyrant, our tyrant. Perhaps he was the owner of a lecture hall there. Maybe he was some philosopher. But it's interesting that some New Testament manuscripts indicate that Paul taught in that school from the fifth to the tenth hours. This would have been from 11 to 4 p.m. Now, even to this day, that is kind of the time for the Middle Eastern version of a siesta because it is so extremely hot. And certainly in those days, they didn't have air conditioning. So what we surmise here is that Paul now uses that particular time for him to, to get together with his disciples and others to begin to teach them more of the word of God. And again, Paul worked night and day for three years here in Ephesus. And it's interesting, he's still making tents on the side. I mean, this guy was tireless. Dear friends, serving Christ is hard work. And unfortunately, we live in a culture today, especially a Christian culture, where... Most Christians, frankly, are lazy. I've seen this before. You kind of ask somebody to help out in a particular thing, even for a short period of time, and they they look like they're having a gallbladder attack because they've got 1,400 other things that are more priorities. This is without a question, I believe, the laziest generation of Christians in the history of the church. In fact, many from other countries 
have witnessed that. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that listen to us from China, I've spoken with some of them via email, and they see this. They don't understand why when we have so much, we are so unwilling to work hard at evangelism and discipleship. There's no sense of divine urgency. There's no real love for the lost. We just kind of punch our spiritual clock on Sunday morning and say, boy, you know, kind of glad I got that over with. I want to read to you an email that we got this week from William Mago Mareng, one of my former students. You've seen him uh, on the on the overhead here, one of the students that I had when I taught in Kenya. And he was responding to one of our elders, Bill C., who had written him. And here's what he said, quote, I am so much thankful to God for this period of time. I am in the middle of the bush in South Sudan, preaching the gospel of Christ to the needy people. I am in a place where there is no network or Internet. I keep you people of Calvary Bible Church in my heart always. I keep you in my daily prayers. But pray with me for peace and understanding among the pastoralist communities. In other words, they're without a pastor. Last two months, the community where I am living was attacked by unknown militias, and it caused a lot of fear, but God took control. People have now gone back to normal life. All people are going back to their duties. Pray for my Bible class, which was interrupted by the insecurity in the area. I have a plan to start it on Tuesday, so pray for the possibilities. As I have mentioned earlier, that I am in the remotest place in the world where there is no connection with a bank. So can you try to hold my support for my family until I get an opportunity to go back to Kenya where there is a Western Union and other banks? I will let you know when I go there. Do you see the difference? I know of a family that left a church recently because this pastor was spending all of his time on the lake fishing bass tournaments. And if you know anything about bass tournament fishing, it requires an enormous amount of time to learn the waters and learn the fish. And I know because I've heard that that sermon's pastors or that, that, that pastor's sermons are as shallow as water on a plate. It's obvious there's never been any studying. There's no discipleship going on in the church. There's no in-depth Bible training. Beloved, I use that example, especially in comparison with William, to help you to understand again that ministry is hard work. And especially for pastors, a true shepherd is going to love his sheep. He's going to do everything he can to feed them and to nurture them and to protect them. And a pastor, if he's a true shepherd, is going to smell like sheep, not like fish. Well, we've seen the labor required in evangelism and the divine hardening of hearts. Let me give you a third very important truth that emerges here from the text, and that is the demonic exploitation of Christ. Boy, do we see this a lot in our day. Verses 11 to 12, we read that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs, which was literally kind of like a sweatband or a headband, 
uh, or aprons, which would have been some of his work apron material, that of a tent maker, were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, you will recall, if you understand your theology biblically, that before the canon was closed, God used signs and wonders to validate both the message and the messenger of the gospel. And here there is every evidence that God accommodated the superstitions of those people of that day, of that culture, where we know they believed that certain articles could transfer supernatural kind of magical power. And we should never see this as the norm for today in the church. Moreover, no individual has the unique gift of healing. But God used this in that day to reveal truth to these people. It's interesting, by the way, that this kind of magical thinking not only was common then, but it is today as well. How many times have you heard of people getting a prayer hanky? And then sending it back to the charlatan for that person to pray over. Of course, you've got to send your $20 to go with it. Or purchasing splinters off the cross. The Catholic Church is big on this. One man did some research over time and found that there was enough splinters off the cross that had been sold by the Roman Catholic Church to build the ark. And yet people buy into this type of thinking. But I want you to notice what happens here. We're going to see that these Jewish exorcists come along and they're they're seeing what's going on here. And they may have even heard. Remember back in Acts five, the people were carrying the sick so that even the shadow of Peter could heal them. They probably were aware of some of this going on. So in verse 13, we read that some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place place. Uh, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, these would have been itinerant uh, magicians that combined their own deceptions, their own sleight of hand with uh, that of demonic powers. And they're thinking, well, my, let's do the same thing here. This is what what Paul is doing. If it works for Paul, let's put this in our bag of tricks as well. And here's what they would say. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then the text tells us that seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And no doubt there were others as well. But this is the one that the Spirit of God speaks of here in this text. And then we read something fascinating. It says, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, you must understand that it was customary for exorcists, frankly, both then and now, to invoke the name of a more powerful ex, uh, spirit to expel a spirit that was less powerful. Um, exorcizo, the word in the Greek from which we get the word exorcist, means to adjure or means to, uh, to command or to charge under oath or penalty. I must hasten to add here very briefly that there is nowhere in the New Testament that we are commanded to speak to demons, to command demons, to bind Satan, to rebuke Satan, to exercise Satan or demons, to renounce Satan. We're, we are told to resist and to stand firm. Moreover, there is no place for exorcisms today. 
we are not even to speak or command holy angels, much less demonic fallen angels. The Holy Spirit of God performs the work of exorcism, if you will, in his work of regeneration at the moment of salvation. Now, I find it interesting here. This is a bit humorous. Isn't it fascinating that this demon would have no part of their ruse? You know, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? When I read that, I was reminded of some times in my life where I have interacted with people who are demonized. And I've heard various times these people speaking with voices that are absolutely terrifying. So here I would imagine that just that sound of that voice was terrifying to these people. And then in verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What an incredible sight that must have been. But friends, here again is a classic example of the demonic exploitation of Christ that is so commonplace among charlatans. Again, as I said earlier, as you study the word of God, you see that charlatans, religious phonies, use Christ. They do not worship him. They use him primarily in three ways, according to the New Testament. One, to gain power over naive and ignorant people. Hey, look at me. Almost a sense of worship me. I want to impress you with my novel insights. I want to impress you with with my special powers. I want to impress you with the fact that God uses me as a channel of divine revelation, that God speaks to me. And now I can tell you things that God wants you to know. So they use him for that. Secondly, they use Christ to position themselves for sexual gratification, the Bible teaches, through every imaginable form of sexual immorality. And thirdly, they use Christ to make money. You read Second Peter, you read Jude, you see this throughout. And again, may I warn any of you that are deceived by some of these self-proclaimed, self-appointed prophets of our day who are frankly nothing more than fortune tellers that claim special powers, that claim that they receive direct revelation, unlike, by the way, the New Testament prophets who actually did prior to the closing of the New Testament canon. They did receive special revelation that was binding upon the whole body of Christ. Not these special little unique types of things that these fortune tellers tell us, but rather revelation that ultimately we see found in Scripture of which we are to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, Jude 3. But these claims of the modern day prophets, dear friend, are bogus. This is a detestable superstition that undermines the authority of Scripture. It undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. And it exposes undiscerning people who are typically those who are ruled by emotions and ignorant of the scriptures to the same kind of men as the sons of Sceva. And wherever you see this kind of thing, you are going to witness people that resent authority. They resent the authority of the word of God and they resent the authority of those who preach it and they resent the authority of churches who stand for it. They would prefer to just kind of everybody float and let's let truth be determined intuitively 
through my own feelings, through my own subjective awareness. Beloved, if you play with a serpent long enough, you're eventually going to get bit. If you want to hear what God has to say, read his word. And the indwelling spirit will lead you into all truth. Well, one final theme that emerges here, and that is the supernatural conversion of sinners. What an amazing thing this is. And it's amazing to think how God uses a demon to accomplish his purposes. Notice in verses 17 through 19, it says this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. No doubt. My goodness. Word would get around on this thing. I mean, at at some level, this is hilarious as well as it is frightening to think that these that these pompous predators get the dog beat out of them. They get their clothes ripped off and they go streaking out of this house in sheer terror. That's going to get people's attention. Word's going to get around. It's going to make headlines. And notice what happens. And fear fell upon them and all fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Oh, child of God, please hear this. This is so exciting. What power there is in the name of the Lord. The name of God is the sum of of all of his attributes. It is the ineffable tetragrammaton, the two wondrous to utter from the lips four letters that comes from Yahweh. Translated Lord. And don't you know they wanted to know more? Paul, you other disciples, you other Christians, tell us more about the name of the Lord. And don't you know Paul was willing to say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. This is the great I am. This is the pre-existent, self-existent, eternal God. This is the Lord of Lords, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts. For you Jews, this is this is El Shaddai. This is Lord God Almighty. This is Adonai Yahweh. This is the sovereign Lord. And for you Greeks, this is Upsistas Theos. This is the Most High God. We know in his word, this is the Ancient of Days. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is the creator God, the sustainer God. The God of all glory and grace. The God who is enthroned in the heavens. Let me tell you more about the Lord. He describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The creator, the sustainer and consummator of all things. He describes himself as the Heavenly Father. The judge of all men. The King of kings. The Redeemer. The refuge. The rock. The salvation. The Savior. The shepherd. The shield. The song. The strength. I'm so glad you asked about my Lord. He is the triune God who exists eternally in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He describes himself as eternal, faithful, trustworthy, good, gracious, holy, impartial, just. A God of love who is merciful, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, patient, long-suffering, forbearing, righteous, Self-existent, truthful, unchangeable, and sovereign over all of his creation. And this is why we should all fear him. Don't you know that's what Paul said? This is why we should all magnify his name. And if you don't fear him, and if you don't magnify his name, it is because you don't understand who he is. Beloved, I hope that you come to this place on the Lord's day. Because you fear the name of the Lord. Because you want to magnify His name. 
In verse 18, for this reason, it says many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Can't you hear them? Yes, I, I, I was a fraud. I was a con artist. I, I was in all of this to defraud others. I, I even appeal to the power of demons here. I want to disclose to you my secret books, my magical books, my secret practices, all of my tricks and my deceptions. Oh, please forgive me. I know God has forgiven me. I repent. On numerous occasions in my ministry, I've had pastors and missionaries and other religious leaders melt in an absolute puddle of tears and confess their hypocrisy because of their use of tongues, because of their use of visions and, and special revelations. And I've seen the heartbreaking damage that this kind of thing does in a church. I've had them confess this to their church and lose their church completely and yet cause others to come forward and confess the same in verse 19, we read that many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the prices of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Dear friend, please hear this. There is no greater measure of genuine conversion than when a man voluntarily and joyfully gives up some great prize in an effort to honor Christ. These people saw the pearl of great price. They saw Christ. Like Hezekiah of old, they tore down the high places of pagan blasphemous idolatry. And they destroyed all of the idols. Like the Thessalonican believers, they turned from their idols to worship the living Christ. You see, they wanted nothing to do with anything that would dishonor Him. This is the fruit of genuine repentance. I think of a man that I worked with who became so convicted over his sin when he came to Christ that he burned his priceless collection, the entire collection of Playboy magazines. He burned them. I've known of others who have burned music, CDs, romance novels, videos, occultic materials, whatever it might be. And beloved, I would ask you this morning as we draw our time to a close, is there something in your life that defiles you, that brings dishonor to Christ? You know what it is. I may not, your wife or your husband or your children may not, but you know what it is because God knows what it is. Some secret sin that you love to savor in some remote place in your imagination, in the caverns of your mind and in your heart, those things that you hold on dearly to, those grudges, those thoughts of unforgiveness, those thoughts of revenge, those lustful thoughts, those ways you defraud others, the ways you gossip, your laziness, your indifference, whatever it might be. Beloved, whatever it is, won't you burn it today? Maybe even literally. I don't know. That's what these people did. Get rid of it. Friends, please hear. Sin is never worth what you think it is. But it will always cost you more than you think. Whatever habit, whatever possession that defiles your body, 
will defile your soul. If it grieves God, dispose of it. If you're not sure, seek godly counsel. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And yet, sadly, many will sell their soul for far less than the whole world. They will sell it for some fleeting pleasure, for some trifling gain. These early converts understood this. They were willing to deny themselves and follow Christ. Unless you think that the word of God is somehow deficient, won't you notice that final verse in verse 20? So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Can you imagine that? What a magnificent demonstration of God's power. And what an encouragement this must have been to Paul, who was working so hard. Oh, child of God, once again, would that we be struck afresh with the authority and the power of this old book. Would that we see that it indeed is a weapon of mass destruction, a weapon of mass conversion. Won't you use it for the glory of God this week? Won't you let it do its work in you right now as it convicts you and exposes you of some sin in your heart? Won't you unleash it upon some poor lost soul this week? Won't you encounter evil with overpowering force? Will you love the lost that much? Will you trust God that much? I pray that you will. So that here in this church and in your family and in your life, verse 20 can be said, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that give us such hope, that stir our hearts to have an ardent zeal for evangelism. Lord, what a, what a glorious thing it is to see you transform a sinner into a saint. Oh, God, would that it happen more. And again, we beg you for the souls of our children, for the souls of our family and our friends. Use us as instruments of righteousness. Make us men and women of the word. And may you be glorified in all that we do. Lord, I pray that you will shower upon some lost soul today the overwhelming rains of conviction that they might see clearly their sin and the Savior. Lord, by your grace, cause them to cry out to you for the unmerited salvation that can be theirs. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.